This is Dean Mathis, the Director of Capital Ministries, Michigan. Today, I want us to look at God's focus. What are the things that God is focused on? Because that's where we need to put our focus and our attention. And the passage we're going to be looking at in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, is the summation of a discussion that he had about godly living, which began in chapter 2 of the way our Bibles are currently arranged. And so he begins this very section in verse 8 with the literal Greek translation of the word to sum up, to bring all of this to a beautiful summary. And in doing this, he uses five adjectives to describe characteristics that are desirable for the conduct of believers. Now, We have to understand something that is very clear in Scripture, but we have to remind ourselves of it. Behavior, in the New Testament sense, flows out of who we have become spiritually through our faith relationship with the grace of God that comes to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah. The reason we're supposed to behave certain ways is because that is who we really are spiritually. And in order to cultivate that aspect of our new internal nature, we look at how we respond to God's commands about behavior, the things that will bring the greatest blessing to others. And I remind you the things that will bring the greatest blessing to yourself. And so he said, this is the way God operates. He's already shown us and set the example and finished the work for us in the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and literally, bodily, totally rose from the dead. And because of that now, a brand new kind of life is given to us the moment we believe that, the moment we are convinced that that is true, the moment we trust God for forgiveness of sins and eternal life through what Jesus has done already for us. So, how are we supposed to behave now as the children of God? So, to sum up, he comes up with five things we're supposed to do. Be harmonious. That's the first thing. This is an adjective. Be harmonious. It refers to a unity of disposition, not unity of opinion. It is an agape love attitude in the midst of differences. A number of years ago, when it was a bestseller, I read Norman Vincent Peale's book, The Power of Positive Thinking. And Peale said when he wrote it, he almost entitled it The Power of Faith, but he didn't think that would sell very well. So he entitled it The Power of Positive Thinking, which is exactly what faith is. It is the power of believing the promises of God, the power of positive thinking. And in that book, he talks about the importance of being harmonious in our lives and our behavior. The point Peter is making here about being a blessing. And he talked about a businessman who came to him for counseling and he said there were these five businessmen that this guy knew that he had developed a literal hatred for because they were his competitors. They were all in the same line of business and he resented greatly the competition they were giving him in his work. And so he asked Peel, What should I do to change this attitude because I know it's not right? And so Peel said, well, let me give you a very simple thing that you can do which will change your attitude toward them. 
And that is you pray for those men by name every day and you pray that God will bless them. In fact, you pray that God will bless their business more than yours. You pray that way. The guy got real angry at Dr. Peel and stormed out of his office and says, I'll not do it. Well, the businessman came back a year later to visit with Dr. Peel, and he sort of came hat in hand, and he says, I want to apologize to you, Pastor. He said, I rejected your advice, but then I realized that it was a word from God to me that I needed to obey as a Christian. And he said, I started doing what you suggested. At first, it was not with my happiness at all that I did it, but as I began to pray for those men, something wonderful began to happen. Number one, my attitude toward them changed. Number two, over the course of the year, they have become among my best friends and they have become very helpful to me in my business. And I have prayed that God would bless all of us and bless them in particular over me. And the result has been we've all gained a friendship and we have become blessings. I have had that example given to me over and over in the political world and in the spiritual world and in the business world. So it does work. Be harmonious. Be of unity of disposition, not unity of opinion. We're not always going to agree, and God never intended for us to, because we have different viewpoints. But we can be harmonious. And I used that illustration last week. We talked about the idea there is like a great symphony, where the parts, if they're going to be beautiful to the ear, harmonize and are not dissident. The second thing, he says, is... Not only be harmonious, but be sympathetic. Now, that's a word that means literally to suffer together, to share feelings with other people, whether joy or sorrow, to try to see things from their viewpoint, to understand that people feel the way they do because of life experiences. The same thing is taught in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, and Hebrews chapter 15, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. The third thing, he says, is be brotherly. Now, as an adjective, That's the adjective form of the word Philadelphia in the Greek, and it means brotherly love. It's used as a noun in chapter 1, verse 22, but here it's used as an adjective. It refers to the way we should love our siblings, our brothers in the flesh, our sisters in the flesh. We should have a natural filial love toward them. And the point being here is human beings in general are our brothers and sisters. We all come from the same parents, Adam and Eve. But in particular, we should work at being brotherly toward those who are also fellow Christians, no matter what denomination, because they are our spiritual siblings. And then he goes on to say, be kind-hearted. So that's the fourth adjective, kind-hearted, is to be sensitive to the way my words and actions impact others, to be sensitive to the way your words and actions impact others. Are you there to speak positively to them? Are you there to hurt them with your actions or your words? And then the final thing, he said, be humble in spirit. It's an adjectival phrase, humble in spirit. The Greek word refers to the inner attitude of those who are in subjection to authority. Now, that may not make sense, but let me give you its opposite. It is the opposite of being haughty or high-minded. So those are the five adjectives that describe what he is summing up here about how we are to behave in our political lives, how we are to behave in our business lives, how we are to behave at home, and how we are to behave at church, by the way. Now, in verse 9, he goes on to say, to give some more definition to this attitude that we are to have as believers. 
not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So the word here is don't retaliate in kind. Don't give evil for evil. That refers to our deeds. Don't give insult for insult. That refers to our words. We are not to scold or reproach or use angry words or return curse for curse. Why? Why? That's a real good question. Why? Why should we behave that way? When the world is nasty and mean to us, and sometimes people say hateful things, sometimes people are out to get us and destroy us. Why should we respond in a Christ-like way to that stuff? Because we are going to inherit a blessing. It says, you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. That doesn't mean we do these things in order to inherit a blessing. It means, as we've been told in chapter 1, we are going to inherit a blessing, not from anything we did, because we didn't do anything but send Christ to the cross, but because of God's great love for us, he's going to give us a great eternal blessing. Our life beyond this life is beyond imagination and beyond anything we can possibly dream. We win in Christ. Therefore, we can afford to be magnanimous and to give blessings out because we will be blessed. So act like it. Extend the blessings that we've already got. Just imagine you've just inherited the entire U.S. Treasury and you can be magnanimous to whoever. Besides all that, you can't be killed. Besides all that, whatever injustices are done, God will make up to you. There is nothing negative that can be done to you that is permanent. Now, it may seem permanent in this life, but this life is a very brief episode in the entire existence of our being. We have to take the long view as well as a short view. Now, he comes back and he becomes a little bit more existential. There's an immediate result for behaving and living and operating this way. In verses 10 to 12, he basically quotes Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. And now he gives us reasons why we should give blessing for blessing because we love life and we want to live zestfully. That's literally what that means. Four, because the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You want to live an abundant life? You want to see good in your days, in your lifetime? You want to live a full life? Now, it may mean that God will give you extended years, but it's more talking about the quality of your life rather than the quantity of it. But if you want to really live while you're living, to enjoy the blessings of God is appropriate those blessings in your own heart. Remind yourself that you are blessed. Remind yourself that God wants to use you just like he used Jesus to be a blessing in the world by the transmission of this new attitude toward and lifestyle toward other people. And it will change you. Wherever there have been a significant minority of believers in any given area in history, it has always changed things for the better. I remember in seminary, one of the professors telling us about a place back in the 19th century, the 1830s or something like that. It was in the backwoods of one of the mountainous southern states like Kentucky or Tennessee or someplace. And the place was really off the beaten path and it had been settled by people who were getting away from the law and was a place of tremendous 
iniquity and wretchedness. And it was a place where, kind of like in some of our cities today, the police won't even go after dark kind of a thing. And uh, the guy was, you know, made a trip through there and he said, it's, it's the most awful place I've ever been. It's the nearest place to hell I've ever seen. He came back about a year later. And in the meantime, an itinerant preacher had come through and had preached the gospel. And there had been a sweeping revival. The same thing happened in the area of Wales in England, where they had a sweeping revival in the early 20th century, in the years prior to World War I. The very same thing happened there. And in this particular town, they, because of the impact of the gospel and the impact of Christ on people's lives, the demeanor in public changed so much that they didn't have court anymore, except once a year the judge would come through to settle matters of, of wills and estates and things of that nature. And they didn't need a jail anymore. And in the case of like the revival that happened in Wales, the police started farming barbershop quartets because there just wasn't that much crime. The internal spirit of God in people's hearts changed their lives for the better. It doesn't mean those citizens became perfect because sin capacity is always with us, even after we become children of God. But the gospel adds to the quality of life wherever it is received. This is the abundant life. So the one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Why must we do that? Because what we are speaking is the real eternal truth that God has extended to all men. Lies and deceit are not true. And all lies and all deceit will someday be defeated. The man who would have an abundant life must turn away from evil and do good. Now, this is a positive way to approach life. Turn away from evil and do good. That talks about our behavior. He must seek peace and pursue it. This brings a blessing to all of us around us. Let's find ways to pour oil on the water, to seek peace, to extend personal goodwill to people. I've had a friend for over three decades who served in the New Mexico House of Representatives and served in Congress for eight terms. A wonderful man. And he cultivated friendships from people across the aisle who shared great political differences with him. But he would meet them in the hall and he would greet them as human beings. And he became friends with some of his bitterest political opponents. And It became such a profound friendship in some cases that when some of these people found themselves in legal hot water, they would come to him and seek his advice and his help because he had become their friend. And it also helped to pave the way for real honest discourse in the political process. I was a pastor long enough to know from pastoral counseling that everybody has a reason why they feel the way they do. Everybody has a life history. Nobody forms an opinion out of a vacuum. Things have happened to them that have shaped their lives and have created the attitudes that they have, even in politics. And so understanding that all of us are sinners in need of grace is a very important component in our lives. If we're going to live a zestful, positive life that brings blessing to us and blessings to others. We need to seek peace and pursue it. Find ways, as much as within us lies, to bring it to pass. And then he gives us a final reminder in verse 12. 
For the eyes of the Lord, now he's quoting here from the Psalms, and that word Lord is capital L-O-R-D, all in caps, which means it is the Hebrew word Yahweh, or I am, which is the covenant name of God for those who believe in him, people who are his because of faith in him. For the eyes of the Lord, the I am, are toward the righteous. Now, this brings me to the theme of what we wanted to talk about this morning. God's focus is on us, the believer, the spiritually righteous through faith in Christ. And then it goes on to say, and his ears attend to their prayers. God sees us and he hears us. His ears are open to our prayers and he is going to bless us no matter what. But then he goes on to give the opposite. But the face of the Lord, the I am, is against those who do evil. The face of God is against evildoers. In Psalm 34, 16, which is a really a translation of the old Masoretic text, says this way, the face or the focus of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. There will be a day in the eternal scheme of things, not too far distant future, where the very acts that evil men and women have done will be totally, absolutely forgotten, removed from human memory. In the future, what's going to be celebrated are the deeds of the righteous throughout history. That's what's permanent. It seems like in our day sometimes that evil and negativity and cursing and vile behavior are dominant, that they come back and they seem to be getting stronger rather than weaker. That may be true for a brief period of time. And I remind you that human history is going to be an extremely brief experiment. It extends across a few thousand years and then eternity will be ushered in. So God says, remember, I love you. I am paying attention to you. I'm the only one who thinks about you all the time. Nobody else does. And I'm the only one who thinks about you simply because I want to bless you. So if you'll trust me, lean on me, trust my spirit living in and through you to do the right thing, to do it the right way for the right reason, and there'll be a great blessing that will come. But remember, the face of the Lord or the focus of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the very memory of them from the earth. May God richly bless you.